Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Abby. I'm Erica. And I'm your editor, Bryce. Today, we're going to be doing a collaborative episode on one of the most infamous murders in United States history, the assassination of John F. Kennedy. So pour yourself a strong cup of joe, and let's dive in. John Fitzgerald Kennedy was elected as the 35th president of the United States. He was sworn in on January 20th, 1961, and at only 43 years old, he became one of the youngest presidents in U.S. history, as well as the first Roman Catholic elected. I think we've all probably heard about the Kennedys. They were a pretty well-known political family. JFK's dad, Joseph Kennedy, was head of U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and also ambassador to Great Britain in 1938. He had been appointed by FDR. And also one of JFK's brothers, Robert Francis Kennedy, was the attorney general during the JFK presidency. And then we all know about Robert Kennedy or Bobby Kennedy, who ran for president in 1968 and was sadly assassinated as well. The list goes on with Ted Kennedy, another brother of JFK, who was a Massachusetts senator, and Eunice Kennedy Shriver, who was JFK's sister, and she founded the Special Olympics. From all that... You can gather they were pretty political. They were very involved in the United States. I think overall, when you hear the name, the Kennedys, you think of people who were really powerful and well-known and well-liked. They basically are as close to a royal family as we get here in the U.S. The Kennedys were a middle-class, almost lower-class family growing up. They didn't have a ton of extra money, but they all really overcame adversities. John F. Kennedy actually was fairly ill a couple times as a child. He had gotten scarlet fever at one point and was diagnosed with Addison's disease as well. JFK also joined the Navy and he was actually awarded a Purple Heart and the Navy and Marine Corps Medal for instances that he encountered while serving during World War II. His patrol torpedo boat had gotten hit by a Japanese destroyer and him and some of his fellow crew members ended up on an island and had to basically survive and he was apparently a big part of their survival and getting rescued. JFK graduated from Harvard University in 1940 and joined the House of Representatives in 1947 when he was only 29 years old and by 1952 he had been in the Senate as well. He even won a Pulitzer Prize for a book that he wrote called Profiles in Courage. The book contains short biographies of different U.S. senators who really risked their reputation by kind of going against public opinion and possibly somewhat damaging their careers to fight for what they believed was right, even though it wasn't the popular opinion at the time. One of the big appeals of JFK was his charismatic personality. People really saw him as a young, fresh face Along with his wife, Jackie Kennedy, they just seemed like they represented a new change for the U.S. And a phrase that is associated with them is called the New Frontier. And it kind of represents JFK's ideas and plans to move the U.S. into a new future where there really weren't any limits. And they're really big on positivity and looking forward. 
So you mentioned that the Kennedy represented the new frontier for Into the Future. Is he the president that had the speech where he said, we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard? Absolutely. Okay. His inaugural speech was, is, I would say is one of the most famous ones because it was so, I want to say energetic. Um, it's very powerful when you listen to it. I was just listening to it for this episode. And he's got that famous line where he says, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country, which I just think is very powerful. Yeah, so he his presidency basically launched the whole, what would you call it, the space race, I believe? Yeah, actually, Kennedy was one of the main components who pushed NASA to start funding us getting to the moon in space. During his presidency, Alan Shepard became the first American to enter space and John Glenn became the first American to orbit Earth. And then um, in 69, it was after his assassination, but that was when we had our first man walk on the moon. Cool, yeah. He's definitely one of my favorite presidents strictly because of that reason. Yeah, he really... They kept, and a lot of this stuff I saw said he reached for the stars, literally, which is kind of a lame thing to say, but he kind of did. And I think it is really neat that he pushed not just the high ranks of people to do stuff. He really pushed for everybody in America to get involved and be active. He was the one who initiated the Peace Corps, where you can join it and go volunteer at different places around the world. He was very much into helping out lower and middle class people or people who are minorities as well. He was very big in the civil rights movement. At this point, schools were supposed to be not segregated anymore, but there's still this time period where businesses and other areas would segregate people. And it's actually, it was the same time period that Martin Luther King Jr. was really moving forward and helping cut back on racism and really accept minorities and that we were all one together. So it sounds like even his short time as president, he made quite a big impact on U.S. history. Absolutely. There's a reason that we know who JFK is when someone talks about him. And it's not just because of the assassination. We all know that the Kennedy legacy is something different and bigger. Well, and he wasn't the only president that's been assassinated, but I think that his is the one that's most talked about. A couple other things that JFK did during his presidency was raising the minimum wage. He increased social security benefits and also raised a lot of money for research into mental illness, which we know, especially just from doing this podcast, that just in the 60s, there was not a lot of research being done on that. And they really hadn't identified specifics. It was just you're mentally ill or you're not, you know, and he pushed towards that. And like I mentioned earlier, his sister was the one who started the Special Olympics. So they really had a special place in their heart for helping out everybody. And I'm going to read another quote of JFK's to you guys, and it's about the civil rights movement, and I think it's very powerful. So he says, quote, 100 years of delay have passed since President Lincoln freed the slaves, yet their heirs, their grandsons, are not fully free. The nation was founded by men of many nations and backgrounds, and on the principle that all men are created equal, end quote. There were some other issues that JFK really pushed for that did get stalled in Congress. He wanted to protect more land in the wilderness and provide federal funds to elementary and secondary schools. And he also had a Medicare plan for providing health insurance for the elderly. At the time of his presidency, though, there were a lot of Republicans in Congress and 
their views didn't necessarily match up with his, so a lot of it got stalled. Another thing that JFK is pretty well known for, aside from his really good work, is something kind of negative, and that has to do with Fidel Castro and Cuba. At one point, JFK approved a mission basically for a small group of Cuban exiles to go to Cuba and try to take over Castro because of his communist ways. And, you know, we're trying to intervene with that. And that's known as the Bay of Pigs invasion. Um, And it really harmed the reputation of the U.S. because it failed and it did not go the way it was supposed to be planned. Because of this failed mission in the Bay of Pigs, the Soviet Union was kind of nervous. There had already been some stress from World War II with us in the USSR, and they were building nuclear missile bases in Cuba and sending materials over to build nuclear missiles, and that could be problematic for us. And it was this really horrifying time, I think it was 13 days exactly, that the Cuban Missile Crisis happened where the U.S. was really fearing that it was going to come to nuclear warfare, and it was basically us against Cuba and the Soviet Union, while the Soviet Union was also nervous because the U.S. had missile bases in Turkey and Italy, and they, which is significantly closer to where they are. And it became this whole thing where there was a tension that could have resulted in us launching these nuclear missiles. Because of this, Kennedy basically quarantined Cuba and They were warning that an attack on the U.S. from Cuba would be seen as an act of war by the Soviet Union. And what ended up happening was there was a meeting where these powers, including JFK, like they all got together and made a deal. And a lot of this was due to Robert Kennedy, who was the attorney general at the time, also JFK's brother, who met with a Soviet ambassador. And they agreed that the U.S. would remove their missile bases from Turkey and Italy, and they promised not to attack Cuba if the missiles were removed from Cuba. And I think it was 13 days. It was noted as one of the longest 13 days of a lot of the public in the U.S. because they were very nervous that a nuclear war was going to happen. So essentially, it was kind of like an intercontinental standoff. Yes, and we're very lucky that it ended the way it did and not a nuclear war, World War Three, or anything like that. So let's kind of start to move towards that fateful day of November 22nd, 1963. JFK was going to Dallas to make some speeches there, kind of smooth things over. Dallas was known as a Texas itself, actually, a very Republican-sided state. Not a lot of them liked JFK and his policies, including the governor of Dallas, Connolly. JFK was hoping to smooth things over for because he was planning to run for a second term. What they had decided was that they were going to go drive through Dallas, and at the end of that route, they were going to stop and JFK was going to speak and kind of give his spiel that he does. However, the Secret Service agents that were assigned to JFK were very nervous about this. The route was already given to the public, made aware basically he was going to be in a car without a roof on it. And Dallas actually had a very bad reputation. They were known as the city of hate at the time. They had a large concentration of right-wing extremists and there had been multiple protests that had turned aggressive in the past with politicians getting spit on stuff thrown at them so it was a little nerve-wracking 
Unfortunately, these fears were about to become reality. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. So it's the morning of November 22nd, 1963. And as Abby said, President Kennedy is in the middle of a new campaign idea in Texas, which was originally kind of the idea between the current vice president, Lyndon B. Johnson, who was the senator of Texas previously, and also the governor of Dallas, John Connolly. They kind of felt that maybe they were losing some of the support of Texas. And with the potential reelection coming up the next year, they thought it'd be a good idea to start campaigning in person in Texas. And also, this was actually the first time since 1948 that a president had actually made an official visit to Dallas. So overall, this was a pretty big deal. The specific part of their campaign that we're going to talk about starts when they were staying at a hotel called Hotel Texas, Kennedy and his wife. And this was in Fort Worth in Suite 850. So that morning at 845, the president is out meeting with some of the crowds in the parking lot and just kind of decides to make an impromptu speech, um, sort of as one of his efforts to start his campaigning, to sort of increase the morale around the presidency and just the overall public perception of him. Immediately after this is when the president attends a breakfast at the Fort Worth Chamber of Commerce. And about 20 minutes into this breakfast, his wife, Jackie, joins him, and then he delivers what will ultimately be his last public speech. So about an hour after he starts his speech... The presidential couple conclude their breakfast and return to Suite 850 to prepare for their departure to the Carswell Air Force Base. And it's this flight aboard Air Force One that will bring the president to his final destination in Dallas, Texas. 11.20 a.m. is when Air Force One departs and lands at Love Field just 18 minutes later at 11.38, which is a pretty short flight time. And just three minutes prior to their landing time, Air Force Two lands, which has the vice president, Lyndon B. Johnson, which is one of the things that they just started doing with Kennedy's presidential run was flying the president in his own personal jet, as well as the vice president in separate jets. Yeah, I believe that they also fly decoy planes at the same time as well on occasion, just to kind of throw people off and really protect the president's safety and the vice president's safety. Yeah, so this was a part of history where presidential safety was starting to take a turn. Another example of that was when they take their motorcade eventually, how they handle the path and the fact that it's usually covered and surrounded by the Secret Service. So despite the fact that the president had a pretty strict schedule on his hands, he still took the time to go to the crowds of people up against the fences at Love Field to interact with them, shake their hands, things like that. And eventually... Four people ended up in a motorcade together, which was the president, his wife, Governor Connolly, and Mrs. Connolly. So they are in this motorcade, which did not have the top on, which is important, because typically the presidential limousine was covered and surrounded by Secret Service. And during this specific case, Kennedy did not want much barrier between him and the people of Texas. So they drove around slowly, 
and the top wasn't on secret service there was maybe an agent or two close by walking with it but that was about it yeah it was actually because of the assassination of jfk that they started putting a major detail on presidents and vice presidents from the secret service they were there and involved during this time and before but not like they are today and a big part of it was due to the assassination of jfk which i think nowadays they have multiple identical vehicles and nobody outside of the secret service knows which one the president is in and they're all held to very high standards as far as bulletproofness and how many people are protecting it things like that one of jfk's good friends and also his appointment secretary kenneth o'donnell had suggested the dallas trademark as the final destination for this trip so that he could meet with some officials make some more speeches so this was about 45 minutes of time that was allotted for this trip to move 10 miles the route was essentially 10 miles long and so they originally had a 12 15 p.m arrival time um, but that was the original plan and so eight days prior to this on november 14th special agent winston g lawson and a secret service agent forrest v sorrels had actually pre-planned this route. They did a test drive on what they believed would be the best route, which took them first through a suburban section of Dallas and then along Main Street downtown, and then finally along a short part of the Stemmons Freeway. So this was all pre-planned, and this is the route that they decided on. So another quick note that I just thought was interesting was they actually, the motorcade, they had a code name for it, and it was the SS-100-X. And that's just what the Secret Service referred to it as. Doesn't have a whole lot of importance, but I just thought that was interesting what they called it. So it's 11.52 a.m. when the motorcade finally takes off towards the destination of the Dallas Trademark. And just to give some perspective on this drive and the number of people, there was over 150,000 people that was lining this 10-mile drive. So this was stuff that the Secret Service had to keep in mind to try to keep the president safe. They had to make a nice mixture of how open and personal he wanted to be, but also trying to keep him safe. And so one of the things that they looked at was the fact that there were over 20,000 windows along this path. And because of the extensiveness of that, they didn't actually go through and examine or inspect any of that ahead of time. Which is actually something that we'll like come back to when we talk about some of the conspiracy theories. I think it's really interesting the fact that this was clearly a risky, dangerous move and the Secret Service was against it, but it's kind of a testament to who JFK was and what his presidency stood for. He really wanted it to feel like he cared and he wanted to be personable and he wanted people to see him wave and smiling. And he really was connected to all the people. It says a lot about who he and Jackie were. And I think that it was just unfortunate that because he was that willing to give up some of his personal security to be personable, that it ended up with his demise. By 1221 is when the presidential limousine is finally taking that turn onto Main Street in downtown. And just nine minutes later is when the motorcade has reached what's called the Dealey Plaza. And this is where three gunshots, it's at least three gunshots that were confirmed to be fired. The first of which is said to have missed, and the details of it aren't totally set in stone. There's some theories to do with that part as well. Yeah, it's really interesting, that first shot, because for a while, they were even questioning whether it happened. Ultimately, I think in the Warren Commission or whatever, they 
decided that there was three because of the casings, but there's theories that it hit a tree nearby or it hit concrete and ricocheted and possibly debris or part of it hit a man who was there watching this. Yeah, that's another thing that we're going to once again talk about once we get to the conspiracy theories. The second bullet is the first one that actually causes harm. It enters the back right of JFK's shoulder, exiting the front of the bottom of his neck, continues to carry through the back of the governor right around his right armpit, exits the front of his torso, goes through his right wrist, which ultimately shatters it, and then ends up being dislodged in his left thigh. Then the third bullet is fired, and this is the fatal shot. It is said to have entered the back right of his skull and exit the front right of his skull. And that will get into a whole debate as well as to the specifics of the direction and everything. But that is the shot that shatters his skull and kills John F. Kennedy. The initial reaction from his wife was actually, after the initial shock, was to try to start recovering some of the pieces of his skull and brain from the back of the motorcade, which is just in pieces now. And that was just her being in shock, thinking maybe she could save him. And I'm just now trying to think about how one might actually react in that situation. It's it's really terrifying. In um interview, I would say, but it was just them questioning Jackie Kennedy after the event. She was talking about her thought process in that moment and her saying, I have my husband's brains in my hand. And that is just absolutely horrifying. It's a chilling thought for sure. It's something that I can't even imagine going through. I feel like it's something that completely changes you as a person. And it's horrifying to think about the fact that she even had to go through that. Well, and what a wild like reaction she, cause there's a video, which Bryce going to talk about, but you can see her. She jumps like on top of the trunk to retrieve these things and pull them back to the back seat where her husband is. It is a crazy reaction, but I also have no idea how I'd react in that situation. And maybe I would do the same. I think in all those, in any situation like this, your first thought is, how do I help? Like, what do I do to make it better? This isn't happening. And I think in, you're either going to completely freeze up or you're going to act immediately. And this was her way of acting immediately. And that's just what adrenaline and shock will do to a human. Um, but yeah, as Abby said, there there is a video. It was documented. And that's something that we will put in our social media, that short clip. Obviously, it is graphic. It's not super detailed because it was shot on film and it's kind of grainy and blurry. But you can clearly see the moment that John F. Kennedy was killed. You can see the direction his head moves, all of that. And you can see his wife's reaction. It's it's graphic. It's somewhat terrifying to watch, but we'll, we'll put it up on our social media. Yeah, and it's a... It's a short clip. It's 26 seconds. It was provided by Abraham Zapruder, who was there watching the motorcade that day. And when you watch it, what you'll see is when the car is driving, it gets blocked from the camera by like a sign. And as soon as it comes out, you can see JFK's hands up by his neck. And you can see Connolly kind of leaning over. And that is after the second shot. And then you just get a full view of that third fatal shot that goes through his head. So like Bryce said, it is very graphic. And I was watching the BuzzFeed Unsolved episode on this, and they were talking about like props to the cameraman for not pulling away. And like he was able to capture all of that, which was something that they then used for like the investigation to try to figure out exactly what had just happened in that moment. And Bryce, you're a cinematographer. So how would you 
what do you think you would do? Do you think you'd be able to stay still and like record that entire thing? Or do you think once the first shot went off, you would probably just jump and freak out and not be focused anymore on what's happening in front of you? That's hard to know because ultimately it is a shock factor. And the sign of a good cameraman, especially for like TV documentation, is somebody that will stay on the action no matter what's happening. And even if that means feeling like you're being useless or that you're reacting insensitively because you're recording what's going on, ultimately it's important to do that. I don't do much documentative work, um, but I can, I guess I can try to imagine if I was on a film set or something or a commercial shoot or whatever and something has just happened, I could, I could easily see myself freaking out, thinking I need to divert my full attention to that and possibly just cutting the camera and going to hell. But he was pretty far away. He probably realized there wasn't much that he could personally do. So definitely props to whoever that cameraman was um, because he definitely assisted with the majority of the research. And I actually um, read a article slash watched an interview with Zapruder, who was the one who um, did the film, and he made bank off of this. They paid him. um, He actually sold the rights to Life magazine, and they gave him $150,000 for it, which... $150,000 in that time period, mind you. And he gave $25,000 of it to the widow of a policeman who ends up being killed in this whole thing later on, which we'll talk about. So that number adjusted for inflation, assuming he was paid in 1963, would end up being over $1.2 million. So he really was paid very well for, for what he was able to do. This event ultimately shocked the entire nation very quickly, and one of the things that I personally came across was a TV network called WFAA. There was a show going on at the moment called The Julie Bennell Show, and the program director, Jay Watson, got in a message about the assassination and actually stopped the show in the middle to do a broadcast, and he's out of breath, he's freaking out, and he delivers what is one of the first messages to the country about what had just happened. And I'll play that audio for you guys, and it'll, of course, be in the podcast and a link in social media to it. And very often you'll find a zipper hidden in the uh, arm. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. You'll excuse the fact that I'm out of breath, but about 10 or 15 minutes ago, a tragic thing from all indications at this point has happened in the city of Dallas. Let me quote to you this. And I will, you'll excuse me if I am out of breath. A bulletin, this is from the United Press, from Dallas. President Kennedy and Governor John Connolly have been cut down by assassin's bullets in downtown Dallas. They were riding an open automobile when the shots were fired. The president, his limp body carried in the arms of his wife, Jacqueline, has rushed to Parkland Hospital. There was actually four total major broadcasting networks that for like three or four days while all this was unraveling and they're unpacking everything, they postponed all of their normal shows and programs and were just solely talking about the assassination and Lee Harvey Oswald and everything around that and surrounding it. I think CBS was one or PBS. Um, I think Fox maybe the one you mentioned as well. So it was like, it was a very big deal. I guess in my head, I'm just kind of, I wasn't around for this time, obviously, but in my head, I'm just kind of imagining it being similar to the way things were when 9-11 happened and how everything just kind of stopped and the world just held their breath for a minute which us three would have been very young but i remember it i think you guys remember it as well and it was 
the nation kind of stood still for quite a while. And it was one of the first times where the country felt united as the United States of America and not, and not so torn apart anymore. So I can imagine something similar was being felt back in 1963. This concludes part one of the John F. Kennedy episode. Tune in next Thursday for part two, where I will begin with the arrest of the main suspect and dive deep into the conspiracies, theories, and speculation surrounding the assassination. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.